sermon number one, and I really just need the support up here because it is kind of lengthy, and my arm will eventually get tired, and I'll be unable to read it, so it's better if I can stand. Now, every word here is inspired, and I think in sermon two, most of it will be inspired. So, we're looking today at Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 8, all the way to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Six, Acts 6, 8. And if you don't have your Bible with you in the rack there in front of you, the black Bibles, uh, you'll find this passage beginning on page 914. Again, we've been reminded in the past when we read the scripture that, you know, this isn't just um, uh, a fantasy, it's the, but what we're about to read is, of course, the whole of Acts is much of the history of the first church coming after Christ's resurrection. And so what we're reading about here actually took place. Uh, this is the real deal. So again, uh, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. 
But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamer in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended this oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why are you wronging each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now 40 years had passed. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Ham and of Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now I come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses... This, Moses, whom you rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you, a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness 
with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the day of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. And when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now for sermon number two. Thank you, Craig. Give him a hand, huh? I mean, impressive. I promise you this will be the longest sermon that we read in Acts. And it would have been longer if the crowd didn't respond by killing the preacher. I say every week that we must hear and respond to God's Word, and I'm hoping and praying for a different response this morning. If you are newer to our family, our community, you might be surprised and may still be that we are we would take that much time to read scripture in a service like this conventional wisdom would probably say it's far too long of a passage read parts of it or none of it and just have the preacher tell you about it but i'm not all that interested in conventional wisdom i'm interested in biblical wisdom 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Furthermore, none of my sermons will ever make the Bible. I'm quite sure of that. Stevens did. I defer to him. More impressive even than Stevens' sermon was his life. His sermon pointed to Jesus, but his life exalted him and exemplified him. And we don't know much about Stephen, except for what we learn in these couple chapters in Acts. Comes onto the scene and, and quickly is off the pages of Scripture and of history. But what we do know is worthy of honor. A powerful man. All the more we give honor to Stephen because I know that if Stephen was Among us today, he would say, no, no, don't honor me. Honor Christ. Eyes fixed on Him. But we do have much to learn from Stephen. Probably more from his life than his the points of his sermon. And throughout this series in Acts, as we've been journeying through, we've been trying to learn from the early church, the apostles the first disciples, the followers of Jesus who were filled with the Holy Spirit's presence and power. They really lived the genuine Christian life as the great Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it. And so we've tried to apply it into our own context, trying to see it through the right lens, but above all to see the Christ that they proclaimed. This could have easily been, I've said this before, a core convictions series as we've journeyed through Acts, but then I felt convicted to just preach through all of it and hit the convictions of our church as we find them in the story. And we've seen a number of them already. We've captured 10, not expected to be memorized, but they're convictions that we are trying to live by as a body and order our ministry and our gatherings around. And we do have them on the website. You can check that out uhchurch.org. We've seen a number, and of the ten, 
hopefully inspired by Scripture in harmony with our greater Alliance family and seen here exemplified in Acts. I'd say Stephen, I was just going through him, I think his life exemplified all of them. There's parts we don't know, but I'm willing to guess his life did. But maybe above all, the one that's most clear in this long sermon that we heard read was that for Stephen, knowing and living God's Word is vital. That's one of our core convictions. Hopefully it's evident in what we do. Truly the Word of God dwelt within this man. He'd clearly studied the Scriptures maybe his whole life, but now the living Word, Jesus, was in him and came through him in these moments, these final moments of his life. And though we don't know much about Stephen, what we do know is that he laid down his life for the gospel far sooner than the first stone that struck him. And here's kind of the ironic twist. Knowing and living God's Word is vital for life, and yet to know and live God's Word will cost us our life. Not everyone will be martyred like Stephen, but everyone who lives God's Word must be willing to lay down their life. In these first eight Verses of chapter 6, so some that we looked at two weeks ago, and then now the few that we've heard here from Pastor Craig. In these first eight verses, Stephen is said to have been full of wisdom, faith, grace, and power. Can you imagine that on your epitaph? Here lies Benjamin Gregory Coffin. Yes, my name is that long. A man full of wisdom, faith, grace, and power. I guess more irony, or I guess it would be an oxymoron, that those that are full of those things aren't thinking about how their epitaph will sound. Because they live their lives fixed on Jesus. For all of their days, as soon as that's cut short, And whatever remains, they pray it would be a testimony to the glory of God, as was Stephen's life. But pretty amazing, not many men in Scripture that have such a succinct and powerful reputation within the church as Stephen. Not even one of the apostles. Maybe a mere deacon within the church. Full of wisdom, faith, grace, and power. A man full of the Holy Spirit. We should pause and consider that in order to be full of wisdom, you must be empty of foolishness. In order to be full of faith, you must be empty of doubt. In order to be full of grace, you must be empty of jealousy. In order to be full of God's power, you must be empty of your own pride. In humility, we lay down our lives. We die to self in order that we might be filled by another. These are Paul's famous words. Galatians 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Stephen embodied this 
far before Paul even had a clue. In fact, I wonder if Paul had Stephen in mind. He was observing the whole event. It's hard to miss the similarities between Stephen and Jesus. Stephen, the one who let Christ live through him, just like Jesus, Stephen, full of wisdom, faith, grace, and power. The Holy Spirit was upon him. He performed great signs and wonders. Verse 8 of chapter 6. He spoke with an unanswerable wisdom, just as Jesus had. Verse 10. They could not withstand the wisdom of the Spirit that he was speaking with. Stephen, like Jesus, preached the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of it all. Stephen endured a trial like Jesus, full of false accusations, hired false witnesses. He suffered and died an unjust death. And even as he died, like Jesus, he gave up his spirit to God and at the same time prayed for his murderers. By the way, don't miss that God answered that prayer. As Stephen prayed for God's grace for those that were killing him, they know not what they do. God was about to answer that. To reach and redeem the apostle Paul, at that point, Saul. Stephen exemplifies Christ and receives an honor, truly an honor throughout eternity. The first martyr. The first one to give up his life, to lose his final breath because he preached the risen Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he would not back down. Amazing that it wasn't Peter or John or one of the apostles because they had been preaching boldly, but the religious leaders were fearful of the crowds that had followed them. Here is Stephen, oh, just a deacon in the church. Maybe we can eradicate him with less notice. But the crowds and the religious leaders were also growing in their boldness for fear of what was happening. For fear of the rising numbers. At this point now, tens of thousands who were proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. Jesus as risen. So they're growing in their boldness through Paul, through Saul's influence ravaging the church. Stephen has this great honor of being the first martyr. His name, Stephanos, means crown. It's appropriate. The only other time prior to this that that word in the Greek, Stephanon, shows up is for Jesus' crown. A crown of thorns. I wonder if James, the apostle, had Stephen in mind when he wrote these words. James 1, verse 12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the Stephanon of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And certainly Jesus had Stephen in mind when he said these words to the church at Smyrna. Revelation 2, verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the Stephanon of life. Stephen fell asleep in this life and awoke to an eternal one. And Stephen does not, he give us incredible hope, every one of us, not one of the apostles, didn't grow up in Jerusalem, didn't grow up even speaking Hebrew, he spoke Greek, 
And as we've been seeing in our study, there was kind of a division between the Hebrew speaking, even if they grew up primarily speaking Aramaic, they learned Hebrew if they lived in Jerusalem. They went to rabbinical school as, as young children, at least the boys did. And they even had, they, they gathered to worship at the temple, but the Greek speakers had their own synagogue. And Stephen was one of them. By some accounts, there was division, if not segregation. Oh, they're lesser class. They're second class. Not one of us. In our context, didn't grow up in the right family. Didn't grow up in the right neighborhood. Didn't go to the right school. And so Stephen is in good company with the kind of men and women that God consistently uses in powerful ways. So Stephen gives us great hope. Not that we would one day be martyred, but that by knowing and living God's Word, we might one day be used in powerful ways. Colossians 3, verse 16, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Stephen embodied this. It was clear that he loved and believed in God's Word. It's what poured out of him in this opportunity to proclaim Jesus. I believe he probably had many of the Psalms memorized. I would guess Psalm 19. Here are some of these words. Psalm 19, verse 7, a Psalm of David. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Do any of us have a heart like this for God's Word? Verse 10 and 11. God's Word is more to be desired than gold, even than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. And how about verse 14? Maybe a mantra over Stephen's life. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That would have been sung as an anthem. We sang a song earlier that uses a phrase, some songs were meant to persist. This was one that persisted for the Jewish people. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, a refrain sung by the church throughout the ages. Psalm 119. So adding a one. I bet Stephen knew this one well. Long chapter. Maybe he didn't have it memorized. Hard to know. But Psalm 119. Here's a few verses from it. Verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Stephen embodied these. He doesn't quote from here but it's evident in just the way 
the Word of God, the storyline of Scripture spills out of him that he knew and lived God's Word. It was vital to him. And it came alive in Jesus. All the light came on in Jesus. Jesus the Word. Jesus, you are the lamp to my feet and the light to my path. You make sense of everything. That's what he is proclaiming. It's not fair to Stephen that they mobbed him before he could fully develop the second half of his sermon. He was just getting there, carefully articulating the storyline of Scripture, about to just drive it home. But maybe he was a little too eager and a little too bold in his accusation of their murder of the righteous one that all of Scripture pointed toward. Paul, the apostle, would later write the core conviction of of Stephen's heart in his own words. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God had a good work in mind for Stephen. Probably not one that he wanted. Probably not one that he had prepared for. In all of his study of Scripture, I doubt he imagined preaching a sermon that would lead to his own death. And yet when the opportunity arose to stand firm and proclaim the truth, he seized it. And God's Word flowed out of him. It wasn't rehearsed or scripted. That seems evident. It was real and it was raw. But it was a powerful recounting of the redemption story of Scripture. Jesus was clearly in it all. Though the name Jesus is not yet mentioned, I believe it was cut short. Jesus is in it all. Not just through the storyline, but Jesus himself promised this very event and others like it. Some of his final words to his disciples in Luke chapter 21, verse 12. And since Luke is the author of Acts, I bet he has this in mind. As he's, How could you not? As he's recounting this trial and this story of Stephen, here's Christ's words, Luke 21, 12. They will lay hands on you. They will persecute you. They will deliver you up to the synagogues and in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate, meditate beforehand how to answer. I want to insert this. Just simply know the word. Don't rehearse. Don't be scripted. No need because I will give you a mouth of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. The exact fulfillment of what happens here in Acts 6 and 7. Verse 17. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. It wasn't a promise for earthly life, heart beating, lungs breathing. It was a promise for the eternal, imperishable life that we heard of last week. Many have critiqued Stephen's sermons, interesting, saying it was fairly rambling and pointless, so it's not all that different than most sermons today. But again, I believe he was just cut short from the full unpacking of how Jesus connected the dots from Abraham to Moses through Sinai and the law to the temple. It was all coming together and they didn't let him finish. I hope I can finish today. 
but in fact, as a powerful point, it is not pointless. Jesus, it's all about you. A sermon I want to preach every week from every page of Scripture. Everything points to him. I don't want to dissect Stephen's sermon. It would be interesting to dialogue on. But as a fellow preacher, I want it to stand alone. Besides, you've received two sermons today. You don't need a third. But what was brilliant about Stephen, not rehearsed, to stand up and preach in such a powerful way, was that he knew and lived God's Word, and that's what flowed out. He knew the storyline of Scripture from beginning to end. God's redemption, his main point above all, is that God's Word teaches one story. God's ultimate love and pursuit of men who consistently run and rebel, God continues to pursue, providing redemption. Everything that happened up to Jesus was temporary. It was a shadow. Jesus is the substance Jesus is the Redeemer, ultimately, the only one true redemption from God. It has been finished. That's the message. That's the sermon he preached. I love how he at least tries to build a bridge. As any good preacher tries to build a bridge with their audience. Stephen starts starts way back in a story that they knew well. And maybe that's what raised their anger so much, as if he was educating them on something that They didn't know. But ultimately, that's what he was saying. So he builds the bridge by telling the story. Their fondest stories, Abraham and Moses. They're heroes of the faith. And he takes that bridge and becomes bold in the proclamation. Essentially, you don't understand the Scriptures at all. Now these are men who had memorized the Torah. The first five books of the Bible. So if you take your Bible, if you have an actual physical Bible in in your hands, and you can grab one if you don't, just just to get an idea. I don't know how you are at Scripture memory. You have a few verses floating around or pieces up there. The first five books of the Bible. Start at the beginning. Get your finger in there. Stick your thumb in after Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I don't know what page number. I didn't look ahead. What page number that is. 177. Those words are pretty small, I've noticed. We just read, Craig just read a page, slightly over a page. These Jewish boys, these Hebrew boys that now Stephen is preaching to were required to memorize that word for word. In Hebrew! And many of them went beyond. The cream of the crop had even more of God's word memorized. And essentially what Stephen is saying to them is, you don't understand the Scriptures at all. It's essentially what Jesus had said. It kind of enraged them to hear that. In John chapter 5, did Jesus not say the same thing? Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. 
But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Essentially, Stephen is picking right up on that theme. Though you've memorized it, though you've poured over the Scriptures for your whole life, you've missed the point. I'm sure Stephen would say the same thing. We all missed it. And now Jesus is here. Jesus has fulfilled it. Jesus is the point. All Scripture points to Him. And since they couldn't kill Jesus again, they killed Stephen. More irony. They had accused Stephen of speaking blasphemy against Moses. That was one of their main accusations. That Stephen was speaking blasphemy against Moses, one of their greatest redeemers in their history. The one who gave them the law. The one who initiated the tabernacle, which would become the temple, the dwelling place of God. They also accused him of defiling the temple. So the irony is, his face is shining like an angel. The only other one in Scripture that that description is given to is Moses. When he came down from the mountain with the law, he was radiant. Stephen, by his very life, is demonstrating the approval of God on him and that all of the accusations against him are false and hold nothing. And Stephen's words are, are fulfilled These men rejected Jesus, but even more gravely at this point, they reject the Holy Spirit. You always reject the Holy Spirit. And the temple, which they worshipped more than the one who indwelt the temple, would in a few years be destroyed, never to be rebuilt. So ultimately, his prophecy came true. Question for us. A couple questions. Do we know and live God's Word like Stephen? Is the redemptive story of God's love and pursuit what flows out of us even in our hardest trials? Even in our greatest pain? Even at times of our most uncertainty about what could happen next in life? When we have the opportunity Are we speaking of God's love, His grace, and His pursuit of man? Are we equipped for every good work? That's what Paul had said about God's Word. It equips us for every good work. The good work God has for us will probably not result in a stoning, even in Washington State. I couldn't resist that. Perhaps we'll have the opportunity to preach and to teach, like Stephen. But let's remember that Stephen was appointed not for his preaching and his teaching. Peter, uh, Stephen was elevated and appointed by the apostles to serve widows. Likely the gift of administration, the gift of mercy. But here was a man full of the Spirit and of grace and of faith and of wisdom and of power. And so he had opportunity to serve as it came. Not all of us will have an opportunity to preach like Stephen. But all of us will have an opportunity for the work God has prepared in advance for us to do. Will we be equipped for it? Equipped for every good work. 
So when the opportunity comes to share hope with someone, to proclaim truth, to offer counsel, what will flow out? Will God's word and his promises and his truth come out? If you're not living according to God's word, whose word are you living according to? Someone's. Some code. Some text. Some authority. And for most of us, it's our own. We live by our own moral code. Our own authority. We may have pulled from here and there what works for us that we stand upon. You know, Thomas Jefferson is famous for taking a penknife to the Scriptures, especially the words of Jesus, and actually cutting out the pieces that he loved and wanted to live by and pasting them into a new book, his own Bible, and discarding the rest. And that was his moral code that he lived by. Amazing. How many have done the same throughout history? And how many of us have not, have not taken a knife to the pages of Scripture, but by word, by thought, by deed, we've essentially dissected it nonetheless. To live according to the parts that we love and resonate with and move the rest to the margins. If you're not living according to the wholeness and fullness of God's Word, you're living according to another authority, another code, another text. Just be aware. There's parts of Scripture that are not only hard and difficult, Peter said that of Paul's writings. There's parts that we simply don't like at face value. They require wrestling. They require prayer. They require study and meditation. Lord, may the meditation of my heart on Your Word be pleasing in Your sight. An admission that I'm not there yet. I haven't figured it in fullness yet, but I'm striving, Lord, to know You as I know Your Word. Stephen clearly had spent years, perhaps his whole life, reading and studying, memorizing and meditating on God's Word. It's evident by this short account of his life. So when is the best time to start reading the Scriptures? Like a famous Chinese proverb about a tree, 20 years ago would be a good time. Second best time, today. No guilt, no condemnation. Today is the day we have. So what should you read? How do you study this massive book? Do you start from the beginning and work your way to the end? You can do that. Most don't make it, so you're in good company. This is a lifetime pursuit. It's not a race. If every word of God is profitable then maybe reading until God speaks to you is all you need on a daily basis. That might be one sentence or one word. I point to the the Moravian church. Maybe some of you follow along with the Moravian daily text. This church has been around for five and a half centuries. I tend to think when something lasts, it might be worth looking into. Since 1731, the Moravian church, now it's a global church, 
gathering. It's not actually a gathering in Moravia. But since 1731, this church has produced a daily devotional reading guide. You can just search Moravian text or Moravian or Moravian church. You'll find it. You can download I think they have an app even. It'll give you a daily text. And it's usually a portion of Old Testament Scripture, a portion of New Testament Scripture, and some of the Psalms. Often there's a prayer associated with it. Over the course of about two years, you'll read through the entire Scriptures if you were not to miss a day. And don't worry about missing a day. Don't worry about catching up. God's Word is living and active wherever you meet it. I think you end up reading through the Psalms twice in kind of their rhythm. But what I love about it is you're joining estimates of one and a half million who are faithfully committed to reading that text every day. So you are joining in with the broader church, the followers of Christ around the globe. Many of our alliance leaders in our field read it every day and pray for each of our 106 churches. They're praying for you, even if they don't know you by name. So I point to a tool. I point to uh, the version Bible app. If you don't have that, it's a free app. Many have given a lot of money to make that continue to be free, and it's full of incredible resources. What I love about it, not only are there are tons of reading plans that can just be given to you on a daily basis, there's encouragement, there's articles, there's prayers, but there's also an audio function to the Scriptures. And if you're not utilizing the hearing of God's Word in your daily life, you're missing the most common way to receive God's Word throughout the millennia. It's only in the recent years that we've actually had this book we can hold, each of us, in our hands, bound in some calfskin or faux calfskin. Throughout the millennia, the only way to receive the Scriptures was to go to a place and hear it read. And now you can take it with you on your commute. When you're working in the yard, walking around the neighborhood, going to the gym, and just hear God's Word. I invite you to any of our small groups that run, our life groups. Our growth groups are centered around this conviction that knowing and living God's Word is vital. So the Essentials course under Craig's leadership, the men's group that meets here on Tuesday mornings, and the others that are in the pre-germination stage, I invite you to engage in one of those somewhere, learning from one another as we read and study God's Word together. Obviously, teachings like this one, but online, there are so many sermons far better than this one, right at your fingertips. They won't be your pastor, but they can be a preacher. I point to the Gospel Coalition. It leans reformed. That's the direction I lean But I love teachers that are sound and grounded like D.A. Carson, John Piper, Alistair Begg, Kent Hughes. It's a great resource. What's the point? There's so many options by God's grace for us to know His Word. What really matters is our heart to the Word. Knowing God's Word is only part of the conviction. If we do not live God's Word, then it has not done the work that it was primarily given to do. Point us to Jesus for the transformation of our lives. The Scriptures point us to the God of the Scriptures. May we come to the Scriptures empty, ready to be filled. 
hungry and thirsty, ready to be satisfied. Jesus said, for man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And let us come humble, no matter how many years you have studied and pursued God's word, may we come humble that there is so much more to learn. So much more of Him, our eternal and infinite God. We are just barely scratching the surface. The Apostle Paul made this his life pursuit. Philippians 3, verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I now count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. To know and live God's Word requires we lay down our life. Maybe not like Stephen's, but in a willingness to move everything else to the periphery except for knowing our God, that we might live according to His will. So we come empty, hungry, and humble, and like Stephen, we come with eyes fixed on Jesus. And I'll end with this. I'll invite the team to come and be ready to lead us in response. With eyes fixed on Jesus, Acts 7, verse 55, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And whether this was a vision given to Stephen in that moment or as some suppose his life was so full of God's Word and His promises that that is just what his heart saw, we, I guess we won't know for sure, but I lean to it being a vision. And the reason I think it was a vision is because Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. And every other time in the New Testament referring to Jesus' post-resurrected position, He is seated at the right hand of God. And here He is standing. I think it's a powerful picture of Jesus standing in affirmation of His servant. As Paul, Saul, is standing giving His approval, Jesus is standing in heaven giving His. And Jesus does not stop the stones. He doesn't spare Stephen's life here. Later, He'll spare Paul's life Remember he said to Paul, you'll learn how much you need to suffer for my name. And he kept him alive again and again and again. He had nine lives. We'll see it in the rest of Acts. But at this time, Jesus does not stop the stones. And Jesus may not enter into our pain or into our persecution or into our trials and stop it or rescue us in an earthly way. But as we endure with eyes fixed on Him, striving to live His Word, He is standing, affirming, and awaiting us to come home. Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and receive your crown. That's what I believe He spoke to Stephen. God, thank You for giving us Your Word that we might know You. Help us to live it that others might know You for Your glory and for our joy. Amen.